hard to keep a black hole for 30 seconds. We like five, so there we go. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Trade Exchange Week in Review for the 13th of January, 2017. Glad to be with you, all of you, uh, with Steve Straza and our very special guest. It's a surprise, folks. Stay tuned right after the market wrap-up here. So, folks, we'll jump into where we are on the numbers side. Uh, the Dow Jones... Industrial average at 19.885.73. We're just off slightly by 0.03% uh, for the day. S&P 500 at 22.74.64, up 4.2 points. And the NASDAQ at 55.74.11, higher by 0.48%. For the week, folks, and year to date, the Dow Jones... Uh, finishing lower by 0.39% for the year, higher by 0.62%. The NASDAQ composite, uh, higher by just under a percent. And for the year, uh, year to date at 3.55%. S&P 500, lower by 0.10% of a percent. And for the year to date, up 1.6%. Uh, again, that's an S&P 500. Russell 2000 at 1372.05, higher by 0.35% uh, for the week, uh, and that's higher by 1.10 uh, year-to-date. Uh, KBW Bank Index, higher by 0.37% for a uh, year-to-date, higher by 1.44%. Uh, Gold Silver Index, higher by 2.02% uh, for year-to-date, higher by 10.37%. Uh, oil services lower by 3.69% for the week, higher by 0.96 year-to-date. Uh, semiconductor uh, higher by 1.76% for the week, higher by 2.01% uh, year-to-date. The CBOE volatility index lower by 0.80% for the week, lower by 20.01% on year-to-date. Folks, stay tuned. Great program coming up. Stay tuned. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what it is. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know what it is. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. Welcome back, folks, to the Trade Exchange Week in Review. We have two very special guests this evening. Kiriakos Theodosiu and Winthrop Jefferson Stratton III. First, we'd like to start with Kiriakos who is our trade exchange contributor from the Frankfurt office. We'd like to kick it off, uh, Kiriakos, specifically on the sentiment in Europe. We know there's a lot of change uh, in the U.S. Uh, since the election, and uh, Winthrop certainly chime in when you have a moment. Um, Kiriakos, give us the at least a high-level uh, sentiment since Election Day. A uh, lot of conversation around this in Europe. Give us an idea of What's happening in Europe in terms of perception, in terms of American politics? Well, I would like to uh, thank you for uh, having me over. It has been a very difficult trip coming uh, from Europe due to the uh, inclement weather that we have been experiencing there for the past uh, couple of weeks. Um, A lot of mixed uh, emotions, uh, that's for sure, uh, based um, particularly on 
the side of the parliament that you sit on. Uh, the left, the liberals, uh, are very, um, in a way, traumatized from the election that you know that happened in the United States. Uh, and there is also a big part within these uh, parliaments in Europe, uh, in the larger nations, especially um, on the right side, that have been very welcoming of uh, that particular result. So it's uh, definitely a mixed emotion. Uh, but overall, there is a certain amount of uncertainty, a certain amount of um, a not knowing what you know it will be like under a Trump presidency. They do have um, a lot of uh, worries about what the outcome of the U.S. policy is going to be. Um, the uh, Europeans overall have experienced a very steady and, um, and not very interchangeable type of like policies from the United States. Um, now they're, they're recently worried, especially on certain types of uh, statements that have to do with NATO and uh, the protection that the United States are willing to offer to these European nations. Uh, and also not to uh, forget the close ties that seem to um, exist between uh, the new president-elect and uh, Vladimir Putin, the uh, president of Russia. Uh, and that is something that definitely has a lot of people uh, worry about, you know, uh, the outcome of. Um, as far as NATO is concerned, there is a um, there is a lot of back and forth between the officials about what the implications are going to be and how this uh, will turn out. Kiriakos, one of the things that's a consistent theme for both uh, the trade exchange and our contributors on a week-to-week basis in the Week in Review is really this this notion that uh, we have to watch what Trump does versus what he says. You, you, you know, it, in our in our podcasts, we talk about this this almost this Trump effect on particular stocks, maybe industries. What's the perception in Europe? Do they are they really paying that close attention to quote unquote his tweets? Are they are they really that um, you know? I, I don't want to say obsessed or at least uh, watching that closely. Or are they really just waiting until January twentieth happens? and seeing some action coming out of the administration? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, ha- I do have to say that the, um, uh, the politicians and anyone who has been involved in politics in Europe know for a fact that there is a lot of difference between what people say before they get elected and what happens afterwards. And they do hope that there's going to be some type of uh, a um, um, some type of, let's say, a certain amount of checks and balances that will come into play uh, you know, after once, uh, you know, um, President-elect Trump uh, takes office. Um, also, uh, they are they're realizing, you know, and this is what, you know, as we are saying before, you know, scares them the most, that there is a certain rise, rise in populism in Europe. Uh, the far-right uh, leaders, such as, for example, uh, Miss Le Pen in France, is uh, elated by the election of Donald Trump. It kind of gives them... A, a very good perspective on how to um, do and how to manage their own campaign, not, of course, to the extremes that, uh, you know, um, uh, Donald Trump brought it, you know, before the election. But uh, definitely this is something that is uh, um, anticipated, that there will be some type of um, um, uh, balancing between, you know, what he does and what he says. Kyriakos, this is uh, it's Winthrop. Um, just want to see how everything's going. I know it's been uh, pretty hectic over there. Um, you know, I do have family overseas, and it's uh, the weather is very. I mean, all I hear are stories back and forth of how bad it is there. But a quick question I want to know: What happens in Europe? Let's say Donald Trump is successful, will that change the mindset of European politics? 
Would that, you know, would that affect the Merkels? Would that affect, you know, the current standing of the, the basically the, the governmental politics in all of Europe if Donald Trump becomes successful? Uh, well, define successful a little bit, Winthrop. Um, you, what do you mean when you, you say successful? You mean a successful presidency, something that you know turns around the economy of the United States and exactly. You know, like currently, you know, everyone, everyone, clearly, you can see through the media and social media. Not everyone is expecting a productive presidency with President-elect Donald Trump. What happens? Let's say that all his policies. All these things he wants to do, let's say they are effective. Let's say they start to work. Let's say the U.S. economy goes gangbusters. What happens? Is it going to be something that will change the mindset of all Europeans and European politics? You mentioned Le Pen. Is that going to skyrocket her into you know something that no one expects to happen in France? Like, what is your thought process if President-elect Trump is successful you know if, if his policies work um, well it's a, a very interesting question and I had, do have to say that you know history has shown that our economics and our economic success kind of dictate dictates the politics that happen in the in those countries uh, there's definitely if, if if they if the US economy booms and creates a lot of opportunity I think this trickles down immediately to the European Union economies. Uh, and also, it could have an adverse effect in what sense that um, by having a very successful Trump presidency, that will definitely give wings to um, uh, politicians uh, like uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen um, in uh, France or um, or in other places also. Um, or in Germany right now, Merkel is facing, uh, there is elections coming up in November of 2017 in Germany. Uh, the um, uh, the the party the the far wing the far right party is uh, definitely gaining up on her, and um, her party the Christian Democratic Party is in a way uh, very cautious in allowing you know big types of um, uh, uh, lending to go on or uh, you know things to go um, uh, go in a way you know uh, uh, going south I would say you know and that I mean Italy and Greece also. So, uh, yes, it could be um, a mixed event, but I think that also that if the, you know, overall, if a U.S. economy is, uh, you know, the driver as it is today in world economics, I think that it will definitely have a positive effect on the economies, and that can lead to different types of political reactions. One thing you brought up that I wanted to ask you, since you, you know, you do understand and follow Greek politics and Greek economies and, and everything that's going on in Greece. Greece has slowly been out of the news, you know? Like, when when we were trading back in the days when there was about the, uh, you know, the presidency, the markets weren't, you know, they, they cared about Greece. Now that Greece is so out of the picture, you know, as a trader like myself, is it something for us to, you know, sit back and think to ourselves, maybe it is something that we have to worry about? Is it, could that be something down the road that could affect the the uh, you know the markets of Europe you know the is it is it something that you know is just being washed away like put a bandaid on and pushed down the road or is it something that you know we have to start to understand that this could affect future standings in you know Europe and the U S economies it could affect what's going on here like no one discusses Greece anymore it's out of the you know I don't even think people even know that Greece is even having any more problems. 
You know, like, what's your thought on that? You know, as a trader, it's very interesting to see what, you know, someone firsthand gets a feel of what is really going on over there. Well, uh, overall, Greece is a, an existing problem, and it has been something that, unfortunately, has become, you know, the, the, the Europeans and uh, the lenders for Greece have been accustomed to for the past seven or eight years. Um, practically, I can tell you that, you know, things have gotten worse. Um, that shows uh, very easily with the, um, you know, with the yields of the Greek bonds that are trading somewhere between 8% and 9% right now. Um, so um, it is obvious, of course, that Greece is an underlying program, uh, problem. It was a problem that the Europeans wanted to extinguish before the, you know, the Brexit you know, vote in uh, England, uh, before the you know, referendum that happened in Italy. These were much more, uh, that these were bigger issues that they were facing that they were worried about. Um, at the same time, it has been a complete collapse in the negotiations uh, involving the IMF and its involvement in the Greek, uh, you know, debt. Uh, but then again, let's not forget that Greece represents about 0.2% of the whole European Union economy. So although mathematically speaking, arithmetically speaking, is not a big problem, it has a big political effect on the sense of unity that exists in Europe. Um, I will give you an example. For example, in the, in the United States, when Kansas has issues or when California has issues, uh, nobody uh, reacts the way that the European nations have reacted in, towards Greece. Uh, the federal government steps in. There is a very strong sense of um, unification, uh, something that is not the same in the European Union. Um, it's a country that they would rather not deal with. And actually, um, unfortunately, uh, it is a country that they are not trusting anymore in, uh, you know, in their you know, conversations, in their discussions. Uh, there's a lot of things that the uh, current government has been um, trying to um, you know, convince the Europeans uh, or the European Union members, um, the, the Eurozone members, that they will do but they are far, far from successful. So it, this is, does not look like it's going to have any type of quick or any successful type of end in the near future. Kiriakos, uh, you mentioned unity. It, it would be remiss if we didn't mention the, the, the proverbial elephant in the room uh, since, since June, if you will, uh, of last year, and that is uh, the Brexit situation. Um, <clears throat> would you characterize uh, certainly you know article 50 has still yet to be uh, taken care of there's a lot of conversation about that uh, how does Europe see this is this something that uh, you know they're they're seeing if they're going to be complying with article 50 when it's going to happen or are they kind of treating this almost like a I, I don't know a redheaded stepchild uh, proverbially speaking Um What's the what's the thought process around that? Uh, this is something that they are still trying to figure out. Uh, the Brexit vote was something that caught everybody by surprise. They're still very numb and very surprised about its outcome. Um, overall, um, it is safe to say that if the uh, the Brits had a chance to vote again, it looks like they wouldn't have chosen to um, to leave the European Union because of all the problems that get created by it, the Article Fifty. Um, and it shows also in the uh, politics between uh, the Prime Minister and uh, the, the British Prime Minister, uh, Mrs. May, and uh, the rest of the European Union leaders. Uh, it looks like uh, they are not 
uh, going anywhere anytime soon. Um, there's a lot of implications and things that will still take at least two to three years to uh, come to play before we realize the full impact of the, of the Brexit vote. So it, it, it is still something that is very complicated and nobody really knows. Um, although the British pound has taken a beating because of that, you know, overall since that particular day, it seems that they have found a way to keep it afloat and do find the mechanisms within the, uh, you know, the British economy to be able to sustain, you know, what's happening so far. But only time will tell. Sure. No, I think you bring up some uh, great points. Uh, I know that uh, your time in the States are limited, but we would be more than glad to have you back uh, on the Week in Review with the Trade Exchange. Uh, as you know, folks, uh, we have many contributors uh, to the Trade Exchange, and uh, Kiriakos and Winthrop are two of them, and we're very glad to have them on. So, uh, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week. Um, wishing all of you a, uh, a, a, a safe trip back. But before we do let you go, we're going to have one more question uh, for Kiriakos from uh, Winthrop uh, in, in, in leaving. Winthrop, <laughs> sorry. Um, one quick question for Kiriakos, um, Winthrop here. Um, this is a market question. I know you don't really dabble in the markets. You're more of a political, you know, type, uh, you know, correspondent we, uh, that works uh, hand in hand as a contributor to the trade exchange. But you know, last week, you know, we um, on the trade exchange and review, uh, we, I mentioned the thought of a market that is, you know, euphoric. You know. What are the thoughts in, in Europe? You know, I see that European markets are also trading, you know, at highs, and it just seems like everything is being thrown away. You know, I mentioned last week with Brexit, and I mentioned, you know, with Trump, and it just seems like no one cares. You know, and still here, you know, we're still fighting with that 20K level, and I believe that that level is that level where could be signaling some sort of a top in a way. Is it the same thought that's going on in Europe? Is it are, you know, the traders that you speak with, do they feel that this market is, uh, you know, a little extended, a little, just a little too much? What are, you know, what's the feedback there? You know, a lot of people don't get an idea of what the traders in like London or anywhere else are saying. Have you, you know, have you spoke with any? Have you gotten any feedback in regards to what this market is doing, how strong it has been, no matter what is being thrown at it? Well, um, with her, I can tell you that from discussions that we have with people that are involved in the markets and the stock changes, it just uh, goes to prove how the elation. I, I was um, uh, glad to listen to uh, the podcast uh, from last week, and I listened to your views about euphoric markets. And it is a continuation of the United States type of euphoria that exists um, that happens in Europe also. I do have to say that the European markets overall are not traditionally as euphoric as a, you know, or they do not react in the same way that the U.S. Uh, you know, um, uh, market reacts. Um, they are much more concerned. They take, um, you know, they're smaller economies. We have to realize that, that uh, it's not one particular, you know, um, type of economy that we're talking about. We're talking about, <coughs> excuse me, about six or seven type or types of, uh, you know, uh, kinds of uh, economies. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, the Frankfurt, I mean, the uh, German stock market has been doing exceedingly well. 
Uh, and the, one of the reasons, uh, you know, that underlines what they do is that just, I think, uh, a couple of days ago, they realized that they had a gain of $240 billion, a billion euros, $240 billion euros in just the interest that they collected from, uh, you know, the types of, like, uh, uh, borrowing that they have done uh, to other countries, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, and Greece. So um, although uh, it's definitely a trickle-down effect that keeps the European stock markets uh, in, um, in close queue to the you know, euphoria of the United States, there are also very specific type of indicators that are giving more reason uh, for them to be in such a state than the U.S. one. Gentlemen, once again, thank you, uh, folks. Uh, this is a real treat to uh, have both uh, Kiriakos and Winthrop uh, together with us. I uh, bid you a wonderful evening. Coming up, folks, a discussion with Steve Straza on macro level and specific equities. Folks, stay tuned. Welcome back, folks, to the Trade Exchange Week in Review. So here we are, uh, an interesting week. Uh, first full week back, we did have five trading days. Lots of information uh, coming through from, for Fed governors. Um, and in relation specifically to the most recent rate hike, uh, and really their plan for 2017. And, and Steve, we are folks, we are here with Steve Straza. Uh, we like to discuss the higher level, the macro uh, first. And Steve, we really did have a consensus this week. Um, number of Fed governors, we did have uh, Janet Yellen uh, speaking yesterday. Uh, your perspective, it seems like, uh, frankly, there has been a kind of a shift in sentiment. Um, it seems as though uh, their fear factor uh, has, uh, for the short term at least, uh, dissipated. Absolutely, and and like you said, the the fear factor. You know, the market's taking it in strides, uh, really very well. You had two or three Fed presidents, I think, two of which were voting members, come on this week and come out and basically uh, assure the markets that you were going to see those three. Um, hikes that they talked about in the minutes that were released uh, last week or the week before. So that's interesting. That's something that could have caused a sell-off uh, in the past, but the market took it just fine. Uh, and, and that's right, Steve. I think that's, a, that's an excellent point. If we look back maybe even three, four months back, uh, the sheer mention of a rate hike uh, in the markets uh, would have... At least some volatility. In, in volatility, yes, exactly. Um, and whether it's in, in rates or... or or the VIX, you know, certainly an interesting uh, dynamic as of late. And uh, we mentioned this last week, but there really has been this this shift towards consensus, uh, this consensus that we are looking for three rate hikes. We're looking for uh, a, an increase uh, in, in, in rates. Uh, we are looking for uh, consisti- consistency in terms of economic growth. Um, it, it, we have seen this, this uh, turn uh, it's, it's as if uh, the perception, at least, is that we've turned the corner. Um, and uh, this week, we uh, specifically yesterday, 
uh, from uh, Fed Speaker Lockhart indicating that the economy is very near or at uh, full employment. Uh, and that's an important, uh, something important uh, we talk about here. Um, and Steve, you know, offline, we, we talk a lot about full employment. It's kind of a moving target, isn't it? Uh, there's really no specific number for full employment in actuality. Yeah, uh, f- full employment is just like this thing that, that exists in theory and academics and, and now Fed governors talk about it all the time. But it's really not something that I think should be used as a basis for a rate hike decision because back in the 1970s or the 1980s, a long time ago, the government actually changed the definition of uh, the unemployment rate. The U3 rate is the headline rate. When you see the non-farm payrolls job report come out, the unemployment rate that we all talk about is the U3 unemployment rate. So that leaves out a whole swath of people who are actually willing and able to work, but they don't fit the now narrow BLS or Bureau of Labor Statistics definition of uh, what an unemployed person is. So so when they shrink that labor force, which is the de- the uh, denominator in the unemployment, um, unemployment number, when they shrink that number, it makes it a lot easier to look as though um, unemployment is low. So... <clears throat> What what happened 20 years ago is they actually changed the definition of what was a discouraged worker. I think it used to be um, something more like six months or longer that you um, were, looking, were not looking for a job and you were considered unemployed. Now it's just four weeks. You're, That's you're, a great point, you're, Steve. You're taken out of there. So a lot's changed, and some economists will actually argue that a, we should be looking at the underemployment rate. That'll give you a more accurate um, figure because it includes discouraged workers. Um, you can even look at the U6 rate, which also includes part-time workers. And you, you'll get up to 10, 11, 12% rate. Some economists would argue that we're actually closer to 15 or 20 in actuality. So, And, and folks, as, as Steve is uh, discussing the unemployment rate, the U6, uh, Steve had a really great article uh, that is in the tx.edu uh, section of the trade exchange uh, website. Uh, this is the U3 unemployment rate versus the U6 real rate of employment. Uh, Steve, really nice work on that. And folks, if you're looking to kind of uh, tap into that a bit more and get your head around it, how it works, it's, it's, it's a great piece and uh, you'll, you'll get some, um, some nice color behind it. And I encourage you too. this is something I'm going to do because um, I just heard this on the radio like on my way here actually. Um, Apparently, the definition of, of the U3 and the U6 and even what a discouraged worker is has been changed by the government, by the BLS, which is who tracks this for the Department of Labor, or the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So that's interesting, too. Um, I guess decades ago, they changed the definition when there was a shift uh, to more of a service economy. They saw this. Now we have the robot issue. So maybe we'll change the definition again. That's right. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's a great point. Even last week, we brought up how certain industries are really going to this uh, – uh, almost uh, systemic change, and and I, I I would think I would venture a uh, uh, a good hypothesis uh, that uh, um, we're due for more change or, or consistent change with how we look at employment and underemployment and 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 that entire system. I think that's a, that's a really great point. One of the things that uh, we wanted to bring up, Steve, uh, this week we did have the PPI this morning. Uh, coming in in line with expectations, um, 0.3%. The core coming up uh, 0.2%, just ahead of uh, expectations. And, th- and the main thing here uh, that 
is interesting is can the producers pass off or uh, can this translate into the CPI um, increase that the FOMC also looks for, correct? When we look for uh, specific catalysts towards inflation, the CPI is really up there, right? I mean, sure. Uh, and and that's always been kind of a, a little bit of a uh, interesting point or kind of a, I don't want to say Achilles heel, but, you, you know, the, the, the objective of the, of the producer to pass on uh, to the consumer, to the end, uh, the end pricing, um, is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting formula. I, I think, kind of, maybe for our listeners, what what you're getting at more is, if you look at the PPI and you look at the CPI. Um, so today, the producer price index came out at point uh, three, so thirty basis point increase. Um, what is that month over month? Yes. So <clears throat> when you look at CPI numbers, they're closer to like high ones, one and a half, two percent. That mix, there's a spread there. And that mix kind of shows you the sales mix, because think of it like a pie, of who's getting what, okay, as far as um, your total sales go. So the majority is going to the retailer, I think, is, is what George is explaining, and that's kind of maybe not an issue, but, yeah, there's a squeeze there on industrial America, and uh, that's something that the Fed watches. Uh, they don't want to just see CPI go up, but they also want to make sure that um, the producers are doing well also. I think that's I, I think that's a great point, uh, Steve. One of the things that um, we wanted to bring up uh, was uh, Janet Yellen's uh, commentary really yesterday, and that is um, really indicating that the short term um, uh, they've I don't want to say they've taken out the risk, uh, but uh, it seems as though the risk has uh, decreased quite a bit, uh, which is kind of an interesting shift. Yeah. <laughs> They they have nothing to do with uh, taking out the risk. Unfortunately, it, the market more more or less decides that. So um, lucky for the Fed, I think a lot of things have gone their way and allowed them to maybe get away with a uh, very um, low growth dovish monetary policy for for an extended period of time. Um, Janet Yellen made some comment. I mean, she said the Fed is focused on keeping unemployment low. And inflation stable. I'm really glad, um, but <laughs> inflation's been stable. It's been stagnant really for a couple of years now, and unemployment is at record lows again. That's all depends on how you want to measure it. You need to watch the labor force participation rate. Um, also, when you do watch unemployment, that goes back to what we were talking about before, as there's a lot of um, <clears throat> uh, workers who are marginally attached to the workforce dropping out of the workforce. Some some months coming back into the workforce. So it's really interesting dynamic there with everything that is going on from a, a secular standpoint, all these um, kind of sea changes uh, in our economy as far as um, automation goes, brick-and-mortar retail versus online goes, and these different trends. Um, so watching the Fed try and keep up with that is interesting because I kind of feel like they're always behind the eight ball. But hearing them all be on track for three rate hikes – was interesting this week, and watching the market react or not react to it was even more interesting. And and, and that's a great point, Steve. Uh, one of the things that you know we, we watch here constantly is is obviously market reaction and, and volatility, um, and uh, really almost a subdued reaction uh, to to overall uh, commentary from the Fed, uh, Fed speakers. 
I think that um, when you take a look at where we are in relation to maybe even just a few weeks ago, we really haven't. Um, yes, there there is this um, approach towards twenty thousand, Dow twenty thousand, but um, we're kind of in in a bit of a range. And uh, when you take a look at uh, commentary, when you take a look at, uh, we'll get into some Trumpism uh, uh, commentary in, in just a, f- a few moments. But Steve, when you take a look at um, the overall volatility of the market, um, are we currently in a bit of a holding pattern? Uh, it seems as though even if you break down the the, the rates, even if you, certainly would you see gold. Uh, positive retracement, uh, continuation of uh, kind of a positive momentum uh, in, in the metals. Uh, when you take a look at the rates, when you take a, a look at overall uh, markets, it seems as though we're in a bit of a holding pattern. Uh, the 30-year uh, under 3% now, the the 10-year uh, hovering under the 2.5% handle. Um, do you foresee this changing once... Trump begins to uh, maybe attempt to put his thoughts on paper, and and um, it seems like it, it, we're almost uh, kind of hanging out a little bit until uh, we get a few things uh, kind of organized on the political side. Yeah, so that's a great comment. There's there's a lot of markets that actually um, price wise kind of seem to be in holding patterns. You know, whether you look at the Dow transports, the Dow itself, um, the Russell. Uh, the S&P, they're all just kind of hanging on there and consolidating after a really nice run-up um, for about four weeks after the um, election results from November to early December. I think what you're going to need to see now is earnings step up and carry the torch for the next six to probably maybe nine months. Um, I thought a really disappointing thing today that I heard on an earnings call had absolutely nothing to do with the company whose earnings call I was listening to do, uh, but more to do with the the overall economy. And that was Jamie Dimon said not to expect um, corporate tax policy for another nine to twelve months. And I, I think you know even people from the Trump transition team. I don't know if it was Steve Bannon or someone mentioned that we could expect it in six months. So to hear that I, it could potentially be a year, uh, that's unfortunate. I know that as far as an infrastructure spending plan, getting you know a, a bill through Congress, I think that's going to be tough. It's going to be watered down at best. It's going to take some time. Um, a full Republican government, like we talked about last week, isn't the best thing for trying to pass a spending bill. Um, so there are going to have to be other catalysts that that bridge the gap between now and when all these great you know things these pro-growth policies come into play and that's going to be earnings so you have to kind of really keep a close eye on that you had some big reporters today in jp morgan bank of america and wells fargo you had delta airlines earlier this week um we have alcoa i think i'm on there tuesday and uh yeah earnings season is really underway so that, that that's going to be what makes the difference for the next couple months and, and i think <clears throat> i think that's a great point uh, n- uh next week we do have uh, more earnings coming our way um this uh, barrage of uh, earnings. Uh, so, folks, stay tuned for the next segment in just a moment. But uh, one thing we do want to bring up is this notion of some Trump comments uh, from this week. He did have his first press conference in a long time. Um, we're going to cut out the drama uh, with some of the media uh, companies that he had, but really 
Uh, Steve, anything that you can pull away from that uh, press conference? Yes, that he had other uh, um, uh, tweets this week. The reason that we bring this up, folks, uh, Steve, uh, Steve and I, um, is that he does his tweets do have an impact, right? And if you're trading securities, if you're actively investing in certain names, large names, multinationals, for the time being, until things change in terms of perception, you want to keep an eye on this. Uh, because the individual does have an impact on particular names, whether it's Lockheed Martin or Boeing, or uh, certainly uh, he tweeted out uh, about and, and spoke about um, the buy uh, the uh, uh, phar- pharmacies and pricing and so forth. So, so pharma is getting away with murder. Yes, uh, and <laughs> the industry has been dis- disastrous. Yeah, so that's a that's a direct uh, that's a direct uh, direct hit direct hit from Trump, which is not uncommon no. to get this uh, type of information uh, from Trump. What is your thought about it? How does you know, I, you know we touch on this weekly, but it's important to touch on because it's still happening. It's still it's not like he's tweeting something and it doesn't have an impact on something. It, it's it's as if it's it's ongoing and and the market does legitimately re- respond to this so how do how how do you how do we approach this going into inauguration uh you you, you buy stocks like abvi and amgen and illumina when they sell off uh, 3% on you know his ridiculous comments well they're not ridiculous comments but it's a ridiculous price action to his comments okay so that that's what you do it's really it's it's a buying opportunity the sector's been beat up enough uh, a lot of these companies trade at low double-digit P.E. multiples. Gilead trades at like eight times uh, next year's earnings. That's because they have different issues. They're, they're by far the cheapest, but there's some of these companies uh, that have a ton of overseas cash um, that they're going to love to talk to Donald Trump about repatriating. Um, the big companies like Pfizer and Merck and Johnson & Johnson, which is really on sale here, I think, because they're more of a consumer goods company than a healthcare company, but they're being priced more like a healthcare company. Um, that's something I would look at. Their dividends close to three percent, but all the big pharma companies really need to do is go and have a handshake and a meeting with Donald Trump and talk about how they're going to move some jobs here, make some drugs here, do something here, uh, repatriate some cash here, and um, then you're, you're a friend and everything's fine, and you have a really low multiple, and you're growing earnings and you're growing your dividend, and there's a lot of companies out there like that. And I think you bring up a, a great point here, Steve. Uh, it, we, we talk about this offline quite a bit, but it, it just does have this feeling to it that um, he just wants to bring up a particular point. Maybe he's do- he's doing it in a particular interesting way by tweeting about it, but really it's, it's almost like he's getting the conversation going. Absolutely, and a lot of it is, you know, he, he has a refreshing approach to the presidency in which he is approaching it like a business. And he is a man who clearly would run a good business, in my opinion, because he wants to keep costs tight. And that's, that's one of the most important things. So he's constantly, constantly looking at where to uh, cut costs, whether it's with Lockheed Martin and, um, or Boeing and the Air Force One, or whether it's with Big Pharma. What he said was um, ultimately that we are the largest uh, consumer of, of drugs and that we don't bid. We don't, we don't bid appropriately. 
what he means by that is, is Medicare and Medicaid and our, our agencies, um, the U.S. government. We buy a lot of drugs or we cover them. Um, so he has this kind of take on on things that other presidents haven't had, which I think the American people like, which is why I think you're going to hear these comments and probably continue to hear them. But then, like we always talk about, is he actually going to follow through and act on this stuff? I don't think so. Right. I think that's an important piece. Uh, and we talk about this uh, quite a bit. But the fact that we want to see what he actually does. Uh, yes, uh, re- uh, rhetoric and commentary is important. But at the same time, when it comes down to it, pen to paper, uh, what's the action? What's going to happen in these particular industries, whether it's the, uh, d- defense or aerospace or, or uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, multinationals? Um, you do have this sometimes when he d- does have these comments uh, for the multinationals. You do have this momentary, uh, I don't want to say cringe, but th- this momentary just – a, a uh, holding your breath a little bit. Who's next? You know who who next is uh, on his 140 character. Which is listen. That's his method of communication. We get that, but it's almost like you're in that thought process of wow. There's a lot of multinationals out there. There's a lot of people that are doing the same thing, uh, and I think that's an interesting uh, kind of observation. Yeah. So what he does is he kind of you know like like you said he targets. The, the biggest players and kind of hopes that'll have a trickle down effect. Like, like you said, um, if he keeps on going at this jobs thing and, uh, you know, maybe he won't need a border tax because maybe companies will, will just, just come keep back jobs. <laughs> right. You know, right. Exactly. Right. But, but that's, that's, I think something to look at and, and back to big pharma, the, the very following day or maybe the day after <clears throat> I was looking through some of my sell side notes that I get in the morning. I don't know who the bank was or, or whoever the analyst was that sent it, but it, it, brought me to a website called uh, Inside Health Policy, where the, 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 the article was, GOP lawmakers oppose Trump's call for the government to negotiate drug prices, and some doubt that Trump even means what he says. Despite Donald Trump's recent sway over congressional Republicans, GOP lawmakers said Wednesday they're standing firm against the president-elect's assertion the government should negotiate drug prices and some lawmakers doubt that trump really even means what he said we can uh, we can agree to disagree at times representative chris collins uh, from new york said the trump transition team's congressional liaison told inside health policy so members of his own party aren't even taking these comments seriously some algorithms take them seriously for a couple minutes at a time but then if you look at the IBB, it's right back to the levels where it was before he made you know his comments during his press conference. And again, there's some stocks; they all get sold off. When trust me, AbbVie was down about three percent that that day. Um, a lot of the good cheap Pfizer was down. Pfizer had a bad week. A lot of the just big safe names get sold off in these comments, and it creates opportunities. I think that's a great point, uh, Steve. We're actually going to segue with this uh, Trump commentary specifically on Time Warner uh, in our next segment. So folks, stay tuned. Some very interesting commentary from from Trump. A little bit of a a drama this week regarding that. A lot of people weighing in uh, whether or not uh, that that merger will, will happen. So folks, stay tuned. back folks for the week in review a special equity uh review for this week 
before we get into specific financials this uh, from this morning, uh, Steve, we did want to segue from last uh, when we ended with the Trump. Um, talk about Time Warner. There's been a lot of drama this week on whether or not in conversation, whether or not Trump will stop this, right? So you have an interesting uh, kind of thought process on this entire uh, ensemble and, and, and so forth. So um, take us away a little bit how you approach whether or not they'll, the merger will be approved. Okay. Um, so first of all, Time Warner, without a deal in place, I think is a great company. They have one of the top maybe assets in the country with HBO, definitely top two or three media asset. Um, they they have a deal in place to be uh, purchased by AT&T for, I think, like $110 a share. Um, I thought the company was a buy at 80 85 uh, after the deal was first announced. I think it's still a buy here. It ran up to, I, I think, almost 100 and it's been kind of sold off a bit on news that, A, Donald Trump, opposes the merger still he tweeted something months ago on the campaign trail i think about six seven months ago about being against the deal when it was first announced um he's kind of had that thing against the media industry as a whole uh so i think he he's cautious for, of, of consolidation there there was also a unconfirmed report about jared kushner being against the deal so then you had uh time warner's stock kind of sell off but randall stevenson the ceo of at&t met with donald trump um, had the whole lobby coverage on CNBC on, I believe it was, Thursday. And my take on the whole situation is this is a very easy way to uh, make money off price arbitrage because the Time Warner deal at, at this point, now that Donald Trump has had what is going to be a historic, famous moment in time when he fought with the CNN reporter uh, during his press conference, you could just see the headlines if – okay, so CNN is a um, subsidiary of Turner Networks, which is a subsidiary of Time Warner Cable. So what will eventually happen is the AT&T CEO who is just meeting with Donald Trump will ulti- ultimately be the CEO or the boss of that reporter that Donald Trump just got into a fight with, right? So you can just see the, the headlines if this deal is shut down <clears> – <throat> that Donald Trump is holding a personal grudge against CNN and against this reporter and not allowing for the deal to go through. A, he's a businessman, so the deal, just from an economic standpoint, makes plenty of sense, and I don't think there's any antitrust issues with it, so he'll let it go for for that reason. And then B, even I think if he wasn't going to let it go through, now after this has happened, he almost has his hands tied to not block it. I think that's an interesting point. do you think this will drag on? Do you think that if it doesn't happen, is there something up Trump's sleeve in terms of, you know, kind of offering an alternative, perhaps in in, in conversation, or, uh, you know, is this a is he trying to set a precedent? Um, I think he already has. So, and and that's why I don't think he's calling these CEOs to meet with them. Okay, you're you're seeing a different CEO go, you know, through Trump lobby and in the golden elevator every day. If you watch CNBC, there's a different CEO. I don't think he's calling these people and asking to meet with them. Just like I said last week, 
These companies want to be a friend of Donald Trump. Okay, that's right. They want that's this right. meeting. They that's want right. to tell him that they're dedicated to the United consen- States. There is this consensus that 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 they they want to be in touch with him. Yes, he he he's gaining a lot of traction with the people. So they they're seeing that it's almost it's a trend. They want to be on top of the trend. All of these big S and P five hundred companies that are meeting with him. You know, they're like you said, they're it's a handshake, and a, I'll create some jobs here. I'll be more U.S. focused, whatever it may be, but just to kind of remove any target, potential target from your back, really. I think, I think that's a great point. Um, as we're talking about uh, Trump, can, can I jump right back in? Um, one of my favorite um, members of the financial media, Barry Ritholtz, wrote an article, and even on Bloomberg, you can now look this up. I think one's called Swamp and the other one's called Oligarchy. But if you look at the companies, what he's done is he's created an index of companies that – Friends of Trump, ultimately, and not friends of Trump, okay? Or if you're Jim Cramer, um, Trump stock, Trump stock, not a Trump stock, not a Trump stock, okay? So if you, you know, the swamp stocks are Amazon, Boeing, um, Macy's, Pepsi, Lockheed Martin, Time Warner Cable. The oligarchy stocks are ExxonMobil, right? Rex Tillerson, Goldman Sachs, uh, Ford, JP Morgan. So the stocks that are friends of Donald Trump are by far outperforming the index of stocks that aren't. I, it's an interesting article. You should give it a read. I think it came out uh, came out last weekend, actually. So it's really cool. And y- y- you've brought this up before, uh, Steve. This notion of we are, at least for the time being, somewhat politically motivated. I don't say politically motivated investing, but there is this notion that we do have to. At the same time, looking at the technicals and fundamentals and, and seeing what the CEO is doing and, and, and so forth and uh, conference calls. But we also have to keep a, a good eye on politics. I have a file that I prepare for, for, for the podcast every week, and it's actually it's becoming a segment of the podcast. I mean, really, he, he's affected so many stocks just this week. There, there's the Monsanto-Bayer meeting. He had Lockheed Martin in his office today. He had Time Warner, AT&T, you know, Stevenson earlier in the week. He had the biotech hit. So you literally – listen, if you are an active trader or investor, you need to follow Donald Trump on Twitter, and you need to get alerts to your phone when he sends tweets. And I think that's a great point, at least for the time being, I think. Yeah, exactly. Maybe this will stop. Maybe this right, is maybe just after kind inauguration of, or something, as things dissipate mm-hmm. in terms of uh, time. But for, for now, yeah. folks, uh, the reality is, is that um, – he does still have an impact on individual names and industries. And like you said, is he setting a precedent? And like I said, these CEOs are probably reaching out to him. Yes, he's setting a precedent, and yes, it's working. So maybe he, like we are saying, won't need to be so aggressive about it in the future because people will understand the sh- new landscape that they're operating their businesses on and – make decisions accordingly. I think that's an ex- uh, excellent point. Uh, Steve, this morning we uh, were treated uh, with um, a, a small barrage of, of financial earnings. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's jump in. Uh, let's let's get into J.P. Morgan. You want a quick breakdown? Please. J.P. Morgan, be on the top, be on the bottom because they're the best. Bank of America, be on the bottom, missed on the top. They're okay. Wells Fargo missed on the top, missed on the bottom. 
to make matters worse, try to blame it on a hedging effort or one-time charge because they are right now by far the dog of the group. You want to stay away from them. Um, but I will say when even Wells Fargo is posting growing uh, deposits and growing uh, loan, loan growth, after what happened with our company, after what came out, there's still – they're still they have a growing customer base that that's just something to be said this is a secular growth story this isn't a winner or losers this is a buy the whole basket right. type of a story that's right steve uh for those that are relatively new to earnings and we are heading into earnings give us a short kind of synopsis of when you what it means when you're looking at top bottom what it means to you. In a very quick uh, kind of definition okay, what so, it all means to So when we say top line, you always see the, the headlines, uh, you know, top line myth, top bottom line myth, whatever. Top line is sales. Your top line is your revenue. It's at the top of the income statement. That's where that comes from. Bottom line is your earnings per share. It's at the way bottom of the income statement. That's where that comes from. Um, top line is a lot more important. I say this all the time. You can't, you can't mess with your top line. It's what you sell. It's, it's really hard to... Listen, if you're messing with your top line, your accountants are getting fired and you're in big trouble, okay? Bottom line, just look at an income statement. That space between the top and the bottom is, is huge. It's just it's a valley of nonsense that nobody understands. Half these companies, you can take all sorts of non-cash charges, adjustments when you get to the bottom line that, for example, companies like Wells Fargo or Bank of America uh, is a good example how they – um, actually beat on the bottom line but missed on the top, that's probably because you know, some, something happened in between. So when you – does do the earnings from this morning give you some kind of direction, some kind of uh, indication of how we're heading into the rest of the season? We're not going to get into, folks, uh, what we're expecting because uh, there's a slew of earnings cover, uh, coming – but we did want to talk about um, is the rally, and, and, and again, we talked about this in offline a little bit, is this rally since the election as a result of uh, prospective earnings or is this the, uh, a, a Trump rally? Um, do you see, are we seeing the right um, top line, bottom line growth that you're looking for a few quarters back? Yes. Um, the the banks made a clear point today that you're not even seeing the impact of the rate interest rate hikes um, and really the 10-year and interest rates really rising naturally by themselves. You're not really seeing that in Q4. It, it's really happened in the last month and last two months maybe. So, so, so you got it for December, so for one month of Q4. So the bank's revenue growth has actually been driven by their trading revenue and their investment banking, not the deposit, not the loan growth. So that's something that is actually going to catch up. And this is just an extra positive that, you know, their investment banking and, and their trading divisions are doing so well when, you know, in past years, those have often been a drag on their earnings. So now you're going to have the catalyst of raising rates, which is going to bring, you know, future revenue growth. So I, I was really excited about their earnings. JP Morgan, I'll highlight a couple things. Um, core loan growth, 12%. Uh, continued double-digit consumer deposit growth. That, that's really incredible. That's 10% plus uh, deposit growth, which is, you know, checking accounts. That just shows consumer strength. That's one thing that I look at as a macro indicator. It's very important. Um, their 
um, trading revenues were the highest on record, 24% growth year over year, um, 2% year over year total revenue growth driven by higher net interest income. Um, they had a 13% return on tangible equity. That's the best in the business. That's kind of like the benchmark that uh, a lot of analysts will go by as far as picking you know, who, who's operating the best. Their investment banking by far drove the revenue growth. Um, $1.49 billion versus uh, an estimate of $1.59. I don't know if that's right. I'll have to check that. But um, their net interest margin was down two basis points quarter over quarter. They made some interesting comments about oil and gas, metals, and mining, saying that that's where they're really seeing the growth in their corporate loan books, um, which is interesting because those are two very depressed industries. You're, you're seeing kind of this resurgence of commodities, and they mention that a little bit just the, through what they're seeing. Uh, so you could kind of make read-throughs like that. They talked about their prime auto loan portfolios performing very well. And then also Jamie Dimon is someone who is very interesting to always listen to uh, just as kind of um, uh, indicator for the overall economy, he speaks very eloquently and clearly on economic issues, and um, kind of he's he's a guy who seems to see the future with with great clarity. So he made some comments uh, earlier this week on a morning show, Today Show or something. He was asked about the Trump presidency, and he said, "Yeah, yeah I am. I am positive or optimistic." because he is putting professionals in the field. He said, if you want to win the game, put Tom Brady on the field. So he was asked about that on the call, you know, you know what made him particularly optimistic on the U.S. economy. And uh, he was able to ramble off just a handful of economic data, consumer confidence indicators, and just some really bullish things that we're seeing. Um, he mentioned small business confidence, consumer confidence, building formation, wages increasing, unemployment going down, CapEx spending, housing, retail sales, auto sales, all that being strong. And then he said, you know, this is just my own personal belief. But it's just interesting to hear a guy who's that intelligent, who runs a bank that has, you know, operates in every avenue of the world kind of – to hear his take on things is, is really interesting. And to hear him bullish is a bullish thing. One more read-through I'll give you is he talked about digitization, uh, fintech, you know, you know, financial services firms. He said that is where all the investment dollars for these big banks are going today. And he said you're, you're going to see another round of efficiencies for, for these banks' cost structures due to these um, fintech firms and these financial service firms like uh, Fiserv, FISB, Cognizant Technologies. So you kind of saw that space rally, I think, almost on his uh, comments. So it's interesting. I, I encourage people to listen to earnings calls. You'll, you can learn a lot about not just that company individually but a lot of things. Steve, one of the things that we <clears throat> would like to jump into this week uh, is retail. Uh, a little bit of a continuation from last week. Last week we talked about uh, Sears and how uh, kind of a landscape is changing. Changing On Thursday we had some commentary out of a uh, Wells Fargo analyst, uh, Ike uh, uh specifically on ROST, L-U-L-U, U-L-T-A, T-J-I-T-J-X, B-U-R-L basically commenting that out of 20 retail companies that have given holiday sales updates, 19 missed expectations. Uh, Is that incredible? Though? It's amazing, yeah. yeah. and and That's a real number. It's a real number. Yeah. And, and uh, again, that was on Thursday. Uh, retail sales came in this morning as well. Core retail sales from this morning were higher by 0.2%. Expected increase of 0.26%. Excuse me. So, again, core retail sales – 
uh, increased by 0.2% this morning. Expected was 0.6%. This is again, this is X auto and gasoline sales. So, Steve, you know, the, the story of retail sales continues um, in, in our new, uh, in, in our ever evolving uh, e economy. Um, and any thoughts on retail for, for the week? Anything that, that kind of heightens your, uh, was heightened on your radar? First of all, in the data you just read, if you strip out the autos, which is where you're seeing, Ford and GM have been incredible. The, the, the auto manufacturers have been great. If you strip out the autos, retail sales, ultimately, they're growing at 0.2%. It's terrible. Very bad. Um, and yes, 19 out of 20 missed holiday sales estimates. Uh, as far as this week, there were no earnings to read into um, as far as the retail space really goes. What there was to read into was what I just alluded to on the JP Morgan call, and you saw it on all three calls, Wells Fargo and Bank of America as well. Very strong consumer book, okay? The deposit base is growing for all these companies. So the consumer is doing well. They're spending money. They're spending it somewhere. They're just not spending it on the traditional brick-and-mortar retailers. And a lot of the companies that whoever that analyst from Wells Fargo named – we were talking about last week, TJ Maxx, the Burlington, the, the off-price uh, discount retailers. Um, also, I think Ulta. Did he, men did he mention Ulta? He did m mention yeah. Ulta, yes. That's a big one, cosmetics. Everybody says that. I always say Home Depot. That's another one. I like um, I like athleisure, some of the specialty athleisure. They, they just have kind of brand power, the Lululemons. Under Armour. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, this week the Lululemon came out and basically said they're a tech company. Oh, that's uh, funny because they're not, but <laughs> nobody wants to be a reseller, so that <laughs> right. So uh, it's it's it, it, again, it's it's you know we we point to this notion that uh, so many things are changing and so many things are. But I w but to that to that comment, they're just following the lead of Nike and Under Armour, okay? Which will tell you they're tech companies. Too. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, and, and again, th that's a great point, and and uh, it, it would be interesting to dive into specific uh, statistics uh, we did have something posted in the forum uh, this this afternoon on uh, the percentage of the retail companies that actually uh, that are reporting that account for retail sales versus other uh, other avenues again so that's another uh, kind of an interesting perspective on things um, to to finish out Steve we are looking uh, to go into earnings on the higher level earnings perspective, anything that you're looking for, anything that would um, kind of pique your interest out of the norm, uh, not specific names, but anything, any particular mentions, you know, of course, we get the um, increasing of uh, repurchase programs. That's pretty normal now. We talked well, about that on, on, on a recent on a, some podcast some time ago. No, but that's an important point. Um, <clears throat> capital return policies, uh, buyback programs, dividend increases. That, that's been big the past couple of years because when you're not growing your earnings, you have to give investors something. you, you got to give them something. So companies were returning capital at record paces. I want to see if that starts to subside a bit. Uh, it won't be uh, the most bearish thing because they were Because you're looking for investment. investments. I want to see M&A. You're seeing M&A. I told you you're going to start to see it in the healthcare and the biotech sector. I think you saw about three or four mergers just this week in biotech. You're going to see a ton more. 
there's basically a fire sale in that industry right now at current asset prices. Is there any industry that you're also looking for M and A? Not not specific names, Steve, but you know anything that again would come up on your radar. Well, there's certain industries that, due to secular reasons, they're consolidating. Agriculture is one of them. We go back to Donald Trump. He met with Monsanto and Bayer um, this week. That's an industry. I think there's two other mergers pending. One is with uh, China Chemical and another, Syngenta, I think is the name. And then Dow and DuPont is the other big one. But then you have companies like Potash and Agrium, uh, Mosaic. It's an oligopoly. Um, you're going to see more consolidation just, just due to reasons like that. But out of M&A, out of just cheap asset prices, um, you're going to see it in industries that have been really beat up. You're going to see it in commodity industries that are now turning around due to this renewed economic growth. Just look at base metals. They've outperformed precious metals by an incredible amount um, in 2016. That's a sign that people are counting on industrial growth. Um <clears throat> So you can you can look for some consolidation in industries like that that have been beat up for a long time, and that and that's why I look at biotech because it, it's been in a bear market for so long. Steve, thank you uh, once again, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for the Trade Exchange Week in Review for the thirteenth of January two thousand. Steve Steve Straza, folks, with us. You can find him and follow him on Twitter at s straza s t r a z z a. Uh, you can follow us at thetradeexchange.com or actually at, on Twitter at thetradeexchange on on the web at thetradeexchange.com. Take a look at Steve's writings on TXEDU. Some great uh, color, great research that he's done uh, and providing us uh, uh, contributions to TXEDU. Steve, thank you once again for a, a great segment. Uh, folks, thanks for checking in from the world headquarters of the Trade Exchange. Wishing you a very pleasant evening.